Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, Selene. Hey, it's Duanna. And welcome to Show Your Work, where I have been told that I am not so slick on the intros. See, even when I'm trying to be, like, self-mocking. It's just a, it's a funny moment in the podcast. I was actually going to like prevent you from doing the intro and jump right in, but you got right in there with your practice, but stumbly uh, pre-rehearsed intro. So. It wasn't even that pre-rehearsed because Sorry, I do everybody. have a little preamble for you, Oh, but it's not uh, about preambling because I think we're, we're done with beating that to death. Uh, what is your, so today you got mad at me because I said that I prefer brown rice to white. I knew you were going to bring this up. Well, today. it's not going where you think it is though. Um, I think this is unreasonable. Like I'm allowed to like the grain that has actual flavor. Uh, and yes, I know that you have a place where you believe that. Please give the people the full context. It's not just like any time brown rice over white rice. Yeah, it is. No, but maybe I didn't make myself clear on our group text today, but yes, it is. It is Chinese cuisine. And you said if there was an option at a Thai, or an Asian cuisine, if there was an option at a Thai place or a Chinese place for brown rice, you would order it over white rice. Correct. Because mm. I actually only feel like rice is a necessary evil to soak up the sauce, which is what I'm actually there for. So why shouldn't I have the rice that I like? Oh, great. Well, you go and have it where you like, and that is why you and I never go out to enjoy uh, my culture's cuisine together. Oh, my God. You're going to make you've, the people you've think… You've put it together now. <laughs> oh, my God. No, because this is clearly news to you. Anyway, I obviously your position is unreasonable. In your defense, last night I was so annoyed with something so unreasonable, uh, and so last night uh, my partner, love of my life, said, oh, I really need to, to go exercise. And I was like, eh, can you say go work out? Uh, even though I realized this is unreasonable. Exercise makes me think of like an 80s video with those like yeah. springs that you pull on right. your chest. I don't know what it is it about was it. The con- like, obviously context again, because if he had said, man, I really need some exercise. It's better. Yeah. Uh, but in general, I don't like the word exercise as a verb. I feel better when I exercise. Uh, it's, I only like it as a, as a noun. Right. Proper sleep, nutrition, and exercise are the keys <laughs> to a healthy lifestyle. That I can deal with. Okay. I don't like people talking about exercising. Right. So I feel this is unreasonable, but it bothers me nonetheless. And I roll my eyes at like, you know, the top five words people hate, like yeah. moist and panties and whatever. Yeah. Most of those I'm like, shut up. Yeah. Those are the English language. Get over yeah. yourself. Um, so is there anything else that you know is unreasonable, but you, it annoys you anyway? I guess most people would think I'm unreasonable for not liking the word utilize. I think it's a stupid word. As opposed to use, you yeah. mean? Yeah, I guess so. I'll, I'll never use utilize. I also hate the word fabulous. Why do you hate it? I think it's stupid. I think it's a dumb word. I think it's 
so overused. I think it's, I hate the way it sounds. It's just one of those words where I could, it's almost, I almost never use it. Right. That's how I feel about exercise, the verb. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I just, I think there are things that are like, you know, if you come home and you always park in the one spot on the street and somebody's taken it, like it's, pet- yeah. it's petty and petulant, but you're annoyed anyway. Yeah. I would like to I would like to start collecting these is my point. Unreasonable I'm points of view. Un, unreasonable annoyed bugaboos where you're like I do not actually have a leg to stand on mm-hmm. but I'm feeling petty and pouty anyway. I wouldn't qualify me judging you for liking brown rice over white rice as that. Uh, that is not exercise or fabulous or someone taking the spot that you always park in. But you saying oh, we're never like, going there's out an to entire eat. culture culinary culture that prefers white rice over brown rice. That's for fine. our cuisine. That's fine. But you, when we go out to eat, it is petty and petulant though that you're like, we're never going out to eat again. I'm not saying I won't eat it. <laughs> no. First of all. Specifically, and of all, we're never going out to eat Chinese. Uh, it's not like we were before. Uh, this is a long-standing I always debate. had suspicions. I always knew. I always just knew that you weren't the one. Oh, for God's sake. You don't, I'm like... <laughs> Okay, that is many foods together. Yes, and but, mm-hmm. right. So you are being petty in this situation. So we understand that. Knowledgeable. But in general, I'm I'm interested in people's petty annoyances that they know damn well are absolutely not founded in anything real. Well, here's what I wanted to say to you. I feel like this weekend I finally feel how you maybe have been feeling for the last decade. So go on. You are not like I wouldn't say that you get a hard on for superhero movies in the sense of like you know you're not the one to like rush out like you know I've seen Avengers 40 times. Right. Probably no. more. I know what's up but it's yeah. all new to me and it's all I'm not I'm not like touching a comic book wound from my youth. Right. right. Exactly. Yes. And my equivalent, like to your comic book movie indifference, let's sort of say, so to speak. Neophytism. Is horror movies. You know I don't like scary movies. I avoid them. It's because I am scared shitless myself. You know I have a thousand paranoias. I (laughs) You are a baby, yes. You Yes, yes. I am a precious baby. I am afraid of everything. Um, and I don't go see scary movies unless it's a professional obligation. And Jordan Peele's rise as an whatever auteur yeah, filmmaker yeah. has led me to have to see scary movies, his scary movies specifically, as a professional obligation. And right now, I resent it. I resent him. That's unreasonable, probably. You resent him because you went to see it and you were terrified? I or? saw Us yeah. and… Like, it was horrible. Right. In in the best way, one assumes, but… Not for me. Okay. Like… Yeah, but this is not a movie review is my point. You're not saying that was a bad movie. Oh, You're God, no. this was terrible. It was excellent filmmaking, blah, 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 whatever. I did not enjoy the experience. I, I went with a friend. You know the friend. And she has walked around our entire workplace today mimicking… She's like, you wouldn't believe what Lainey's like when she goes to see a scary movie. These weird sounds come out of her. Like, she… It's whimpering and it's, I don't deal. 
So, okay. So tell me, describe to me the theater, because I know you, you only go to the like reserved seating. Recliner seating. Yeah. It's amazing. Like, that uh, was the best part. 3,000 calories uh, a meal. Yep. I had movie. the poutine yeah. and the bacon burger with cheese. Right. And uh, the pickles. Yeah. All of the above. The deep fried pickles. And was the theater full? I would say 50%. Because when we went to see Captain Marvel, yeah, uh, it was in an all but empty theater in the middle of Miami in the United States, and we were up on the third floor of this theater, and I think nobody else was there, and barely anybody was in the movie to begin with, right? And we're walking past the displays, and uh, the aforementioned partner says, "I'm." not going to see that in the theater. That is a home rental for me only. And I said, I don't know if I agree that that's the case. If I'm going to be terrified out of my mind, uh-huh. I want to be surrounded by other people. I don't want to be in my home where I feel like there could be a serious problem. Mm-hmm. You agree? Well, I saw it in the daylight. Yeah, but so it's dark in the theater. So. I know, but I wanted to step outside and for it not to be scary and dark. And yes, you're right. I would never watch it alone. If I had to, I'd watch it with Yasik, and he'd have bruises all over his arm, which is what happened when we watched Get Out. Right. But now you see I have like a a loyalty and fidelity problem because if I, for my own self-preservation, want to see the movie in the theaters, then I'm cheating, essentially. How? Well, if I go first, then when we watch it subsequently as oh, a rental, on your partner. I'm going right. to know what's happening. Right. Right? So you're not having an authentic scare, although Get Out was good the second time through. I'm never going to watch Us again. Oh, it's that kind of a scare. Okay. All right. Yeah. Did so, you have nightmares? Yeah. I have had a really hard time. Like, Lupita's, I, I don't know if I can look at her again. Wow. With, okay. I don't want to know anymore. Yeah. I don't want, like, I know the whole thing is you have to go in as, as blank as possible, mm-hmm. but I don't, I, yeah, I, I don't like scary movies, but I do, I like being scared. Now I remember think, the so. person I went with, yeah, like, is, was like, oh, whatever. Yeah. But that person <laughs> who we love, and if that person is listening, they know who they are, is uh, whatever about just about everything. Yeah. Like it's hard to get but, I'm, but I am, an, as you said, neophyte. Right. So I don't do horror movies very often. Like, this is probably the first scary movie I've watched in five or six years. Right. And the last one was out of professional obligation too. Get Out was, no, actually, I, the last one was Get Out. And well, it was yeah, very yeah. scary, but psychologically scary. This one is like scary. So like, did you like watching Blair Witch back in the day? No. Was that a fun scare? No. No? no. See, I found that fun. No. I don't like any of this. But anyway. I don't like, I don't go to the grudge or the ring. You were the ring for Christmas that one time. Yeah. Or I for can, Halloween. I can, I was a great ring girl. Yes, you were. I, I can dress up as it, but I don't want to spend two hours like thinking about it. It was really, to me, I found it horrifying and horrible. Okay. Um, Good movie, I guess, but I didn't enjoy it. But unlike when I saw my latest horror film, uh, which was the uh, the Kidnapped in Plain Sight on Netflix, uh, which everybody needs to have seen if they haven't already, go find it deep in your algorithm. You didn't fill our group text with every solitary detail saying, watch this, watch this, watch this. Mm-mm. Wow. You're like self, you're preserving us. Okay. All right. This is okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. I can't even, anyway, that's the last I want to talk about it. 
Jordan Peele, fuck you. You're brilliant, but fuck you. He's on your bad list. Oh. Okay, very good. Okay. Uh, next week, a book comes out. It's is it called, next week? It See, is. Speaking of Christmas or yep. Halloween, this is this is how it feels to be me, waiting for this book to come out. We will be devouring it. I cannot wait. You loved Top of the Morning. Absolutely. Yep, I did. And they're basing the new Apple TV show with Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston and Steve Carell on Top of the Morning, partly. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, they all showed up at the Apple keynote uh, to be paraded out. And they obviously are, like, think of how much money that had to be to get everybody there to just reassure you that those are going to be great. Yeah. So 20 episodes right off the top, two seasons. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be a hit whether you like it or not. I've heard really good things about it. And now, on April 2nd, in a few days, a book we've been waiting for like are again are about to devour Ladies Who Punch which is the book about the view written by Ramin Satude. I did not know that I was waiting for this book so deeply uh as deeply as I'm waiting for this book. Yes. This is a show your workbook <sighs> or somebody's work. I don't know if this is work or what this is because of course the excerpt that you sent me with like nine exclamation points <laughs> that was so excited was an excerpt from a conversation with Jenny McCarthy. Right. um, Explaining her position on The View. Right. How it came to be and what it was like to be there. And I, wow. Yeah. Like, I don't know what I was expecting, Mm -hmm. but this was not it. Look, she, and of course there's all kinds of tea there. Great. Aside from the tea or within the tea, there's a lot of insight about the strategic decisions that were made for The View, by The View at the time. Like, this was The View in, what, around 2013-ish? Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, and the at that time, The View had already been on, like, what, some 17 years. Oh, my God. What, yeah, it was, I, like, 1997? I want to say 95, but, like… Right. In the 90s. I remember the premiere. Like, I remember being home from school in the summer and being old enough that you were just kind of bumming around in the mornings. And the big premiere was a big deal. I can still, I think I could still recite the Barbara Walters opening if I wanted. I had an idea for a show. Um, God. And the first decade was pretty spectacular. Yeah, and pretty um, unchanged, right? It was uh, Barbara... Elizabeth Hasselbeck, who I can't remember her pre-married name, yeah. but from Elizabeth Fularski of Survivor. Yeah. Wait, no, Debbie Matinopoulos was first. Right, it was Lisa and Debbie. Lisa was, uh, Lisa? Lisa? Lisa was Ling. later. Lisa was post-Debbie. Right. Um, and ultimately, yeah, gosh, I, yeah, Debbie was first. Debbie was not their great young person. Debbie was not long for this world. No. Uh, Meredith Vieira, of course, was the anchor. Joy Behar was Joy Behar now and always. Mm-hmm. And Star Jones. That was the beginning of Star Jones. Was Meredith there to begin with? She was, yeah. Okay. Because I remember I didn't know about her before. Like, okay. I would have been about 14 or 15. Yeah. And then went, oh, I want to be Meredith Vieira. Yeah. So, in its first decade, it was unrivaled. Yeah, and it was a pretty revolutionary yeah. sort of take for to be able to swing from uh, topics of national importance mm-hmm. to 
topics that were lighter and that mattered to women and people. Mm -hmm. Uh, The only other person, of course, who was doing that at that time was Oprah. Yeah. And even she didn't always get into the political issues of the day. Right. As much as she got into, like, the political issues of life as a woman. So it started getting shaken up when Elizabeth wanted to leave You know, there was all kinds of rosy Elizabeth drama, which helped the ratings um, at the beginning. Then it became toxic. Then there was a shakeup. Elizabeth left. And when we come back to Jenny now, what Jenny is saying is they were in this period of recalibrating where they were like, no politics. We want pop culture. We want celebrity gossip. We want you to come on. And that was the, well, that was her entry point. That was the lure. Right. That's right. And what's interesting about that actually is, I had forgotten until we were talking about this, that there's a point in the article where Bill Getty, who of course we all came to know, right? Bill Getty was like the character. Yeah. And he said they wanted blah, blah, blah. Uh, And it's implied that the they is ABC, Mm -hmm. uh, which is interesting because you sort of think of a producer like that as being the studio, even though you and I know better now, um, you sort of still think that way, that he's the the studio boss. He's keeping it in line for them. Right. Um, But that they were the ones who were pushing more towards pop culture. Yeah. And then they, again, ABC, were, were the ones who were like, actually... More politics. Let's go back to the fighting. So what we mean, or what I mean about, like, this is, yeah, good tea, you know, all the things that she's saying about how Barbara spoke to her, and she was getting yelled at, and this and that, the other. Inside all of this is the makings and the decisions behind the scenes at a very successful, long-running institution that is really still struggling to find its footing again. Because I would argue with you that you said, oh, you know, the footing started to falter when Elizabeth wanted to leave. I would argue that the footing faltered when they lost Meredith Vieira. Ah. mm -hmm. I would have to look up what that date was. Right. But she was the anchor, and she was an excellent anchor, not just because she had been an actual anchor, but because she could be counted on to be on either side of a story. She was not playing a role one way or the other. Right? Yeah. Um, I can see you looking it up. Do you know when she left? Um, uh, you, yeah, you are absolutely correct. The first moderator on The View starting in 1997, and it was uh, 2006 or so. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, that was a long period of time. That was a nine-year stretch. And I mean, I'm sure The View historians would be annoyed for me to say, oh, the descent happened from there. But I feel like from there, then the shakeup started to be more often and more precarious. It was a destabilization. That's for right. For sure. And they're still trying to get it back. They're Yes, they're still trying to get it back. I mean, the Rosie and Elizabeth fireworks persisted for some time. It was like for a while there, I remember there were like, there were headlines every day. They yelled at each other. And they, they did that controversial thing where at the beginning, the viewers loved it. The boxes. Oh, right, right, right. Right, yeah. the side-by-side boxes. Like, that's a bing, bing, bing. That's yeah. right. That's a producer's decision. That's a control room decision. So when you're seeing one one head come up in a box and on the other side of your screen it's somebody else, they're saying in control room, oh, this is good. It's getting dirty. Let's go side by side and make them yell at each other. Like they in many ways, they encouraged it. 
They're not going to make a control room decision like that if they weren't loving it for a while. A hundred percent. And if they couldn't see, you know, maybe people don't know this, but contrary to popular belief, uh, there isn't like an actual physical ticker that you can watch the ratings go up and down in real time. Those tickers may exist, but none of us in production get to see them because you wouldn't do anything except watch it. Yeah. The data comes out like a week later. Yeah. Or sometimes you can get next day ratings or whatever, but it's not… You don't know in the moment. And certainly before social media, you didn't know in the moment. Now social media is, uh, it can be an indicator of how some people are feeling more or less in the moment, but you didn't know. So yeah, they had to have been getting decent feedback for a while Mm -hmm. that that was going well and that, yeah, they were feeding into it because, wow, this is is heat up TV. And look, they were right. This was an era when your option if you didn't want to watch it was to flick the dial, right? Like change the channel. And so what would you have seen? You would have seen somebody making a recipe on another channel, um, maybe some daytime evangelists on another channel, maybe like some kids show. Like there was nothing else on and certainly nothing that looked like this. No. But at the same time, it started to grate on people. I mean, it becomes exhausting to the viewer. And they had to do something about it. Rosie left. There was all kinds of mess around that. Then… And in dubious defense of Rosie O'Donnell, not that I necessarily think I want to be defending her, but she was brought on to be an agitator. No, like, nobody said, oh, Rosie's going to be a nice equilibrium type, right? Yeah. Her queen of nice shtick that she had going on on the Rosie O'Donnell show was sort of long gone before that. Yeah. So she would have expected on some level that she was meant to go head to head, right? So to your point, that destabilization, which is probably what they were after when they brought on Whoopi. Yes. Really hasn't, like, I mean, it, it hasn't been as calm as during the Meredith days. And maybe it's impossible now. Views are so polarizing. Like, you know, people just you can't disagree to agree or agree to disagree anymore. It's when you disagree, you know, the gloves come off. Well, and the casting has become much more uh, overt, right? Like everybody on that show is a card carrying something or other. Yeah. They are staunch defenders of this or they are absolute Republicans or they are liberal Democrats forever or whatever they are um, has become a thing, right? And I don't know if they ever argued about things that didn't have some political angle on one way or another. Well, that was certainly Elizabeth's role, even during the calm years when Meredith was there. Elizabeth was the, like, a a Bush supporter, right? She was always for George W. Bush. He was, what, elected in 2000 and was president from 2000 to 2008. So, she was definitely there most, like, yeah, she was definitely there through his presidency. And she was that voice of the Republican Bush supporter. And that's when, you know, she clashed a lot with Rosie. For sure. For sure. But I think it got to the point where even if the topic was, should we outlaw celery? Like they would find themselves on either side of yeah. that debate, which I think is why people got exhausted, right? It wasn't just when your number came up of your buzz topic that really gets under your skin. Yeah. It was also, let's just go head to head whenever we can. Yeah. Like, this is what they want. So I I guess, like, 
I mean, I can't wait to read this book. I mean, this is, they excerpted probably the big salacious section, the Jenny McCarthy section, because, you know, she clearly was willing to go all in. But we're obviously going to see more mechanics from, you know, the 20 years of the show. Yeah. And look, I think that, I hope that wasn't the juicy section. I hope there's more juice there. Uh, But I also think this is one of those things where the more you know about daytime television, and this is not just you and I who have worked in these worlds. This is anybody who watches or who watches the morning shows or read Top of the Morning. I think the more those mechanics are going to be, those are gossip in disguise too, right? It's the same way that, uh, remember a few years ago when uh, Kelly Ripa was the last to learn that Michael Strand was moving on? And she just didn't show up for two days. Yep. Like, that's lovely. That is delicious. And the glory of live daytime TV, as you know Mm -hmm. personally, and we'll get into that, is that it really is live daytime TV with some exceptions. So there's not always a lot of cool off time between, between episodes for people's views to change or to get new opinions. So I hope there's a lot more gossip, but I think, yeah, even the mechanics, as you point out, even the day-to-day is going to be interesting. But you know what naively surprised me? What's that? And like, it surprised me, and then it it surprised me that it surprised me, is that in reading this excerpt, at least, as you said, like, you still remember Barbara saying, I had a dream, or this was my dream, Mm -hmm. I've always wanted to. I had this idea for a show. Right. women from many different backgrounds, That's blah, right. blah, blah. And it's a clip that they've played over and over again, right? Mm-hmm. I realized that I bought into that narrative full tilt in the sense of like, I thought Barbara had ownership of the show. And what you learn from this excerpt is that she, at least by the time, like in the last two years of her being on The View… She was powerless. Yeah. And I think that that is, I think you're, you're pointing out the timing of that is the point here. Um, Cause it was her creation. And yes, we were very much led to believe that Barbara not only created the show, but like uh, editorially directed how it would go down. Right? Yes. All the time. And we find out that like she didn't have final say on casting. But that you know, was so late in the game. Uh, if you have- but how does that change? You know, like, I'm assuming if she created the show, they, she would have some contractual thing written in. So at some point, did the contract change where they were like, hey, we are going to continue to have you on, or of course you're going to be on, it's your show, and we're still paying you this much, but we're removing that clause where you get to call the shots? I- yes, I would say so. So there's a clause. Because that's woe in itself, Right. Well, look, so Jenny McCarthy's excerpt, which is not that long, um, describes some uh, elements of Barbara Walters that can only, like, can at best be described as, like, uh, memory loss from old age, right? That's the best description of those sequences and of those sort of lapses in memory and in behavior. And I think those are things that we know can befall anybody at any age. Yeah. So yes, even Barbara Walters would have a contract that came up every three years or whatever. Um, There's a phrase in contracts called meaningful consultation. 
And that's when they say you will receive meaningful consultation on casting Mm -hmm. or on graphics or whatever. Right. But that's not the same thing. Meaningful consultation means we are 100% taking your opinion into the, you know, into the pot, but it's not the same thing as approval. Yeah. Or final approval. Yeah. So I suspect that if she was having memory lapses, that somebody somewhere had a series of heated conversations and then they all went to Sardi's or wherever was a business place. You could still do a deal in New York in, in 2011 and hammered out these points. No, she doesn't get uh, the final approval anymore because she's vetoing everybody who is fill in the blank, whatever it was. I Barbara Walters is a hero of mine. I cannot tell you about my entire like childhood and adolescence when my parents were like, that's enough. That's enough TV for you. Yeah. And it became theirs again on Friday nights and we watched 2020. Yeah. She was a hero. Mm-hmm. But no matter how much we admire her, and I did and I do, I can see a world in which from from an old age perspective and also just a television moving on perspective where her views might not have been up to date anymore, right? where they might not have had the weight that they once had. What I'm saying though, I get it. That's a very practical application, like a very reasonable assessment. I don't believe that across the board, that is what happens in contracts. Like, I don't think were she a man, the agents representing her and the management representing her would have allowed that negotiation to go down where something in a contract was allowed to be taken away. We both have we both have negotiated in the course of our careers contracts. Absolutely, all the time. It is so hard to fight for something to be put into a contract that you fucking cling on to it and you don't let that go. Like it's it's like paying someone less. You know, the minute that you give them $100 for their salary, asking them to do the same thing and be in the same job and have the same title and saying, no, but next year I'm going to give you 90 almost never plays. And it certainly doesn't play in a business where contracts are negotiated by agents and managers who like are obviously, you know, experienced and tapped in and... I just couldn't see it. Like, for example, I would never see that happening to Charlie Rose if Charlie's if Charlie Rose's career had gone on and he was, like, working to her age or Tom Brokaw or whatever. But you said it yourself. It's about uh, you can't pay somebody less. But here's the thing. If contracts were always that simple, then it would just be – because we've talked before about how contracts are often negotiated for three or four years at a time. There's a step – increase in every year in that four years, for example, yeah, uh, with the understanding that you're going to come back to the table with something new, right? Like when that yeah. renewal comes up. And it may have been for whatever reason, I hear you that you're like, how did they take that away? But maybe she was going to start making $15 million a year instead of $10 million, And they were like, well, listen, we're going to bump it to eighteen. But we got to bump this down to meaningful consultation because, listen, she's not all the way reasonable anymore or whatever it is. Like if it was just everybody agreeing, okay, everything we have here plus 10% more, it would be, that would be done by 945 in the morning. They take time because people don't 
think contracts are like contracts are binding until they're not, Mm -hmm. you know, and there are a million clauses. This is why lawyers are highly paid, especially entertainment lawyers, because they wiggle and they Uh clause and they subjuncture 5A. Like, I love my lawyer. Well, here's to that point, though. Uh, You said we've negotiated and signed a lot of contracts in our time, right? Yeah. When's the last time you actually read every word in your contract? Me personally? You personally, not your lawyer. Or Yasik. Or Yasik. Or- <laughs> every, and I'm saying every word. The yeah. one that says, for example, there's a clause in every contract I sign mm-hmm. that says I'm not allowed to go skiing or waters <laughs> or like, uh, I think it's parasailing or something. Yeah. Because I could like, you know, injure my hands yeah. and then, uh, you know, I'm useless basically. Right. Uh, and depending on when it is, you either strike it out or you whatever. Right. In a standard contract, I think that's point number 12. So I never read point number 12 because yeah. I know what that is. But when's the last time you read every single A long word? time. Right. A long time. Because the lawyers know what they're doing, but there's also a reason they are that long because they have all those wiggle clauses mm-hmm. and moments where you can get in and out from under. All that said, does that mean it wasn't like offensive on a, on a, morale level that that happened. Um, Yeah, it is kind of. But also, this is the thing about creating a show, about creating anything. It starts off as a Barbara Walters creation. Yeah. But it is, for better and worse, it becomes much more than that, right? You can't have 200 people working on something that is an idea that's living and breathing every single day and still hold on to all the control of it. Like, that's your Oprah. Yeah, even, yeah. I mean, yeah, Oprah, uh, like, but that's a good comparison. Barbara Walters operated within ABC. She was making a production for ABC. Oprah, God love her, so many lessons. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. She started her own production company. She was like, oh, hey, that's right, that's right. Who wants to air this? Great, it costs this much. Give it to me. Yeah. Oh, you don't like what we're covering? Too bad. This is what Thursday's show is. Enjoy. Oprah was making a product and giving it, yeah, franchising it to all the the outlets to buy it, whoever wanted to syndicate it. Yeah. Whereas Barbara Walters was working, she was an ABC employee, essentially. Yeah, I think that that was what was like made so clear in that excerpt that I found really like, again, surprising and then surprised that I was surprised. Mm -hmm. Um, What did you think of Jenny's, well, the way Jenny described it, um, was she made Whoopi look like the bad person, right? She made Whoopi Goldberg out to be cranky and cantankerous and non, not generous. Yes. Not generous with Jenny and not generous with, with Barbara. Barbara. Right. Yes. So in particular, I think that what we're both hitting on with the lack of generosity is towards the end, Barbara wanted to moderate right. like her final shows or whatnot. And Whoopi was like, nope, it's in my contract. Right. That I always get to moderate and I'm not letting you moderate. Right. And Jenny's perspective is that that was a dicky thing to do mm-hmm. on Whoopi's part. Right. I didn't see it that way. That's not how I saw it either. Yeah. Because, okay, so let's play this out. I'm Jenny McCarthy. I'm long gone for this show. Yeah. I'm, as you say, spilling all this tea because mm-hmm. uh, it can only benefit her to yeah. be back in the news again. And to her credit, she talks about how... She, at one point, she swore she was never going to go on the show again. And then she was like, well, three years later, I had another book to sell. So I went yeah. back, you know. She's very honest about that. Yeah. Um, but 
yeah, Whoopi Goldberg had negotiated to be the moderator. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's what you negotiate for because that's why you negotiate, to get the things that you have so that on days when things are terrible, you know what you have to hang on to. You know what I mean? Like there are only so many things that you can know for sure. And one of them is these are my tasks that I do and these are them. If you give up that task that is yours and it goes well, you know, it's, I struggle because on the one hand, uh, I really believe in the idea that if you are not surrounded by ego, that you can afford to be generous, right? And that if you give something to somebody, it costs you nothing. But that's somebody, that's speaking about giving something to somebody on the come up, right? Uh, That's right. Who's making their way up. You're, You're securing the future for everybody. Your generosity, your it costs me nothing, it has to cost you nothing. That's a really good way of putting right? it. Yeah. What would it cost? We already have information here that Barbara sometimes wasn't with it, that she may have been not as sharp as she was before. And also that there were accusations of pettiness and of brattiness That's among right. everybody. I think this this excerpt uh, from the Jenny McCarthy era is hardly the first time we heard of infighting at The View, right? No. We have heard lots and lots of infighting. Decades of it, yeah. That's right. So to go back to what you said, what does it cost you? Yeah, it doesn't cost you when it's someone on the come up, a new talent for the show that can be laying the foundation to secure the strength of the show to make sure that Whoopi continues to have a job. That's right. But you put it back in the hands of Barbara, who is no longer on the come up, who is on her way out. Mm -hmm. And what's the risk? Well, the risk is that people are like, oh, actually, maybe we like it better with Barbara. Oh, it feels like an old home week. Oh, let's do some more classic episodes with Barbara. It makes you vulnerable. Um, It's also a decision that you would make from the position of being vulnerable, right? right? Like that's not a decision that you would make if you felt super secure and your boss comes to you and is like, can I do one for old time's sake? You'd be like, sure. Mm -hmm. Or you understand that the show is already a little bit in a precarious position. Part of that precarious position is that it doesn't feel fresh anymore. Part of the reason it doesn't feel fresh anymore is because you've got someone there. Who who, has been, like, let's be real, who had been anchoring one thing or another at that point for like 40 years or whatever. Um, And you're like, hey, in this business now, we've got the chew, the talk, the whatever, whatever, every other show coming up from behind us. We can't afford to have a bad day. And not only that, the other thing that is so hard in a workplace but is good to remember is you're not privy to what anybody else is being told. Uh, We are not privy to Whoopi Goldberg's meetings or her contracts where they may have said to her, under no circumstances do you cede any moderating power to Barbara because that's when we have the great guacamole incident of 2004 or whatever it was, right? Like there may have been something that was made very clear to her that if she didn't hang on to her, you know, to her moderatorship, that there would be difficulty. So we don't know. And certainly it doesn't sound like these women were sharing with one another. It's kind of deliciously old school, right? Oh, yeah. Like I'm thinking about uh, still still that thing about the Friends cast all negotiating together. Mm-hmm. We all get a million or nobody does, that kind of thing. This is the polar opposite <laughs> of that. Yeah. And I don't know, like… Listen, I think The View is an institution. I would certainly never want to see it go off the air. Well, it, and it 
I don't mean to interrupt you. I'm yeah. sorry. I just it it is an institution and also created a genre, right? You said yes. the talk and the chew, and of course we can't not mention your day job or one of them at the social, which is a panel of four to five women and guests talking about issues of the day. That's right. It's, Which is in its sixth season in Canada, uh-huh. going into hopefully our seventh. Yeah. So the view is our like ancestor. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And and uh, and you can see, I'm sure, from both a gossip perspective and an insider's perspective who lives this every day, how these kind of foibles could could come up if you didn't have management like X, Y, and Z. If people were feeling petty or insecure, if whatever. You can see how some of these things are endemic to that form. It, I can. And it, here's the thing. People have said that The View may not be as popular now because nobody wants to watch people shouting at each other on the TV. Sorry. I, I just rolled my eyes back into my head because yeah. that's a, that to me is a, a veiled sexist comment, but go on. It's an incomplete statement. I, I agree that Sure, you don't want people shouting over each other. Everybody should be able at least to like finish their sentence. Like when five people are talking at the same time, no, that's not fun. That's like TV basics, right? Like, I mean, ostensibly, but that's also the bedrock on which Fox News and CNN were built. Sure. Right? Like, no, but I'm not trying to just be cute. Um, Those networks have, they're not hurting for ratings. Like uh, it's not palatable and it may be the entire reason that uh North America is in a <laughs> a maelstrom of anger and fear mm-hmm. but it doesn't hurt the ratings necessarily like necessarily. what people are talking about is they don't want to see women yelling at each other I listen I'm never going to fight you on that I would say time slots are important like at 11 o'clock I do want to see people debating and I definitely want to see them raising their voices. I do not want to see them talking over each other. I need to be able to hear me personally, whether it's a man or a woman, I like to hear what each individual person is saying. I'd like, you know, each person having a distinct mic. On top of that, though, I, I also appreciate, fight. like, yeah, of course I'd love to turn on the TV and watch people, like, arguing. Who am I? When they're good at it, it's great. Right? Exactly. When they're good at it. I think the difference, though, is that it gets uncomfortable when you think that they don't stop at the issue. That's right. When they don't like each other. That's and you right. can see it, right? We've all watched enough of The View yeah. or on rare occasions The Talk or whatever, where whatever feelings people were feeling at the end of segment one are still continuing after the commercial break, right? You can see people kind of shifting in their seats and yeah. fixing their hair and not making eye contact with one another. Like, they're still mad. That's right. And yeah, that's the thing that doesn't work about it. And that's the way that live TV and talk TV is meant to be like sports, right? Like, you leave it all on the ground, but then yes. you let it go. And those human beings, because they're human, mm-hmm. aren't always able to. But to your point, you are right about the like the tolerance for it is certainly shorter when it's a panel of women like nobody is out here criticizing the fact that on sports shows they're constantly yelling spit is flying everywhere you know oftentimes they're cutting each other off and nobody is using the words shrill 
or bitchy or whatnot. They're like, oh, it's these guys being very passionate about like the sport. (laughs) Yeah. And the other thing that bothers me about it is that historically, this is not increasingly not true, but historically daytime network television was aimed at women that they were considered to be Mm -hmm. the primary audience, right? Um, Women at home who were, yeah, working from home or more likely were homemakers or whatever, that that was a prime period when they could watch the show. Right. I'm not sure if I believe that those viewers at home were the ones who were like, oh, we don't like it when they fight. It's not nice when they fight. I'm not convinced mm-hmm. that, that that that's really what the viewers were saying yeah. versus those suits in the top office right. who 100% were men yeah. and would be happier if the women were giggling over, you know, oh, look, Banana Denzel's bread. here and he's super cute. Yeah. I, I just, there's something in it. Not every woman is as combative as I am generally. Yeah. So I don't want to speak for everybody, but I, I can't shake the feeling that I'm not sure that's true. So do you think in three years, the view is still around? Uh-uh. And Wow. Yeah, I not in this form, mm. but that has more to do with other socioeconomic things. Like, who's it for, really? Even the um, the most tech averse of our parents now know how to get around Netflix and know how to get around everywhere. I'm I don't know anybody whose life is dependent on that show and the schedule of it the way that it once was. Right. Facebook has become the view in a lot of ways, yes. right? You can you can see those fights there any at any hour yeah. without having to watch it at 11 a.m. Uh, and the the t- the people's opinions aren't changing. This is the other thing about daytime TV and this is uh why it's such a hard format is there's not enough time for people's minds to change when you wake up on Monday, have a debate about something, and go in on Tuesday, and it's a slightly different debate in this in you know it's the same debate in different packaging. I don't think so, and I think that as more and more people work from home, like the workplace is increasingly a thing of the past. I think that the ways that people fill their home offices are going to change. Yeah. So, did you say three years for any particular reason, or to get us over the like to to the twenty year mark? Well, I do think it'll be around until 2020. Oh, yeah, for sure. And Pun then not intended, but <laughs> yeah. And then beyond that, it has been 20 years because you said it started in 97. So, I think 97. I mean, but it, that seems right. But um, it seems late to me if I'm being honest. Okay. But uh, but yeah, maybe they take it to 25. But I don't think it's a. I don't think it's Saturday Night Live. I do not think it's an institution that is going to be ongoing. 1997. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, I, I can't Oh, yeah. See so in three years from now, we'll be 25. 25, right. Which so, is as long as Oprah was on. Which is a nice place to stop. Like, yeah. I don't think it's going to be. SNL is, by contrast, is that I believe this is season 42. Right. 42 or 43. And there are no overt signs of slowing down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... I don't think that the view is the same thing. I think there will be legacies, as you said. I yeah. think that the format that it pioneered will continue. But I think uh, all good things come to an end a little bit, right? Well, you guys let us know. 
The book comes out next week. You and I will be mainlining it, Duanna. Uh, yeah, like fighting and over the last copy uh, anywhere and, and yes, racing through it. I'm sure we'll be referencing it the way Top of the Morning comes up uh, on this show probably once every month. I hope so. I hope for it to become one of our Bibles, you know? And the other thing is if I'm wrong and you or any of your family members are religious watchers of The View and you love it and you've stuck through it for 20 years, tell us. We want to know what it means to you or what you love about it. Or if you defected, say, to the talk or somewhere else that looks similar but has a nicer vibe, uh, I'd love to know about that because i that's a factor that I think is interesting. Like how many people went, I'm just going to go over here where it just feels a little nicer. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Because you can't deny, right? No. Nope. All right, let's see. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, so the next topic maybe made you as excited for the podcast. I was going to say thirsty, and I thought that word is <laughs> has been maligned of late. So you were raving to get to the podcast to talk about this next topic. And it is... I kind of cornered you in it because I put it in the site intro last week, and I was like, I'm going to tell Duanna we have to talk about this. Yeah. I mean, that's a manipulative <laughs> move, like Barbara. Um, that's, a, that's a move there. But... Uh, it is the interview, the one that you expect uh, from everybody sooner or later. It is the now what post Game of Thrones yeah. Kit Harrington variety interview. Right. And um, I have an interesting question for you because how do you feel? It starts with a, a lengthy description of Kit Harrington's haircut. Yep. Now that the final season of Game of Thrones has fully been shot, mm-hmm. uh, he's cut his hair. It's totally different. Yeah. Thoughts, feelings, questions. On his hair? Yeah. Or starting it with his hair? Uh, Both, I guess. I like it so much better now. You. Yes, okay. You and I have different aesthetic. Yes. I like it so much better now. Uh Uh-huh. I do find it interesting that his hair has been such an obsession. And it, it's, listen… Physical attributes like hair and body and lips and whatever are written about in the context of female actors a lot. Jennifer Aniston, her hair, friends, hair, this, hair, you change your hair. I don't remember like a male actor's hair being this much of a conversation. Now, part of it was because it's an indication of storyline, like, you know, a couple of seasons ago, spoiler alert, whatever, when uh, Jon Snow was killed and stabbed like 18 times, the whole like mystery thing was, oh, if he's off the show, how come he hasn't cut his hair yet? He always talks about not being able to cut his hair and like he's still walking around summertime, his hair's long, he's coming back, he's coming back, he's coming back. Part of that was to do with storyline and character, but 
it just was really interesting to me. It has been really interesting to me, the fixation on his hair and then opening an, opening an article, it felt like a Vogue piece. It really did. And um, it, you know, this article points out that he's been so focused on his hair that any job he took was like, well, can you grow your hair back in time for going back to Game of Thrones? And in fact, they called it uh, the most compelling curls on the small screen since Felicity, which I thought was a really great comparison. Um, But when you said, I don't know if there's ever been a man's hair written about this much, you're ringing a bell for me. And it's going to come back when we're talking about our third or fourth topic tonight. I'll be like, oh, so-and-so. But there's, there's been a male whose hair was talked about. Maybe Clooney, the Caesar. Remember that? That yeah. was a thing. Like Clooney circa ER yeah. was a hair thing. It wasn't quite so whatever. But I think one of the reasons that it is interesting is not because obviously haircuts are uh, very symbolic, right? You're shedding things. You're changing your image or whatever. I sit here with a spanking new haircut as… I love it. As a, I'm glad. Um, It's a full Daisy Jones. It really is. Uh, And if you know, then you know. Yeah. But uh, one of the things that I think is interesting about it, though, is that it's not just a rebranding. It's also a, like, everybody has short hair. And it feels as though it's a recasting of type, right? There was a thing about Jon Snow and thus about Kit Harington. Something about the hair was obviously Game of Thrones is out of time and whatever, but it also feels a bit like 90s throwback to me. It felt a bit Charlie Salinger. It felt a bit like young and thinks he knows but knows nothing. Pun not intended, but there it Mm -hmm. is. We know. Even like boy bandy? Yeah, something like that, right? right? Like not a boy, not yet a man. Yeah, Yeah. flopsy hair. And then when they went solo, they cut it. Yeah, there's something, that's exactly it. There's something about it that's like, I'm Samson. I cut my hair and I'm still strong. I Guys, I know that's not the Bible story. It's fine. (laughs) But yeah, there's something about it that's like, look at me, men. Yeah. And I don't know. I feel bad for him because... There's no way that that haircut wasn't going to be kind of performative, and yet it's a lot. Does that make sense? Yeah. The whole point of this was to reintroduce Kit Harrington post Jon Snow, right? The show's going to be fine. They didn't need promotion for the show. He did not need to be on the cover of Variety for the show. I mean, I'm already tired, <laughs> and April hasn't even arrived yet. I am excited for the final season. I want to know how they're going to tie it all up, but I am not one of those people uh, who's been desperately racing through a rewatch or three in time for the final episodes. Like, I want to just go in and and be there, and why are you making that face? Well, because I've got homework for you, which I haven't actually asked you about yet, so you may need to rewatch. <laughs> We're all writing uh, a piece, a post, prior to the um, the final season premiere, and we are writing, uh, each of us, there will be five of us, uh, you, Sarah, me, Kathleen, and Maria, um, an ep- uh, a piece each about our favorite episode. I will do that on <laughs> one condition. I will do that on one condition, and this is the condition. Yeah. I want you to tell Sasha that she has to write a piece about it too. And I want to be there when you tell her that because I want to see her face when she freaks out. When she, when she refuses. That's right. Yeah. uh, 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 Okay. Um, 
that's fine. It doesn't have to involve watching 25. No. With you, it doesn't. Episodes or whatever. Anyway, I, yeah, you're right. They don't need him. April is going to be a Game of Thrones BuzzFeed fest of insanity. Yeah. No matter what. And that's Mm -hmm. fine. And that's going to be in your inbox every day and every promo. And like every promo email that you get about a product is going to be somehow tied to Game of Thrones in an annoying way. They didn't need him. He, though, needs something. Yeah, you're right. And what's interesting to me about this is where do you go when at the beginning of your career, he's 31, 32 now? 32, yeah. So at 23 years old or so, when you think about like when he auditioned and got the part and then started shooting, Mm -hmm. he landed the biggest show on television. Yep. So you start at the beginning of your career at the top when you're young. So now it's over. You're entering what is normally the prime. Well, yes and no. I mean, there's a reason that people coined the phrase the golden handcuffs, right? Because, yeah, it's a it's a particular issue to do something like this. What comes to mind is the Harry Potter kids, right? Like they, right out of the gate, they landed massive, huge, huge jobs that they would always be associated with, always be the faces Mm -hmm. of, right? So the key then is to make sure that the next thing you do is showing another side to you. The question though becomes, do you have another side? Like, if you are Kid Harrington, do you have another side? Yeah, you're right. Does he have it? Um, you know, you mentioned the Harry Potter kids, right? Daniel Radcliffe is, he's got the financial freedom to do small projects, to do some stage, to do things that don't have, like, come with a lot of pressure. Emma Watson, she's fine. Yeah, they're fine. Um, I would argue that Daniel Radcliffe has done a really good job of shaking off Harry Potter character-wise, like actor-wise. Look, I don't think Kit Harrington has to worry either. He's got money. He doesn't have Harry Potter franchise money, but he's got a lot yeah. of money. He, like money where he can sit on his ass and not do anything for a couple years. For 10 years. Yeah. Easy. Um, in like the fancy house. The question is what do you want then, right? Like I think there are, don't you believe that there are people who were on Game of Thrones for the full seven who are like, oh my God, I made it to the end. I didn't die. Yeah. Who we'll never hear from again, right? Correct. Or to be clear, who are established British actors that we didn't know existed before. Mm-hmm. And we're like, okay, I'll just sit here in my ignorance and yeah. we won't see them again. Um, I don't know who will be that or who isn't. But the whole point of Kit Harrington being on the front of Variety means he wants something else. Oh, yeah. He doesn't want to sit at home. No. He felt it was a hardship to not be able to cut his hair. Yeah. Actually, you know what it reminds me of? Ooh. Do you remember when the Dawson's Creek kids were all fussing about how they couldn't take movies because they couldn't go to meetings in Hollywood because they were shooting in Wilmington, North Carolina? Yeah. And they all said, like, what a hardship it was that they couldn't go. Um, it's a bit of a blessing in disguise. Like all of them to varying degrees have had 
long careers in the business, mm-hmm. especially relative to some of their WB peers. Sure. Maybe partly because they weren't available to take all those movies and do all those things. I wonder if something will be similar for for Harrington. But the issue is I don't know what he wants. I don't know what he is outside of like Jon Snow, like a bit of a puppy dog and like yeah. noble of heart but chubby of cheek. Well, it's interesting because in that interview, he name checks Aaron Taylor Johnson. Mm-hmm. And he's I like, he's like, you know, I'm not going to be considered for the parts that Aaron Taylor Johnson's getting, who, you know, is working with Tom Ford, who won a Golden Globe, like who's doing pretty interesting, serious work. Um, and so he has in his mind who he wants to be peered with. Uh-huh. And yet he doesn't seem to be, con- well, and yet he knows that he has to convince people that he's on their level. Like he wants you to think if you were a casting director, he wants you to like, when you're making that list and Aaron Taylor, and Aaron Taylor Johnson's on it, he wants to show up on that list. Of course, um, but he's not that guy. Like, he's not that guy because he doesn't have the resume yet, right? Like, he yeah. doesn't have the the drama. Look, I'm just going to say it. I think the guy could be a great actor, but we haven't seen it yet. That's not to say he's been a bad actor. Yeah. But, like, there's a different set of skills required to stand around in Iceland and, like, scowl at somebody across a field of CGI yeah. than there is to, like, do a small, emotive Sundance movie. So let me ask you this, because you have been a great defender of television. Always. And ha- what it brings to a career mm-hmm. and how it can help you. Mm-hmm. So here's a dude who was, like, you know, a central character in a long-running TV show that is the most successful TV show. Yep. And he's come out of he he's coming out of there with a certain amount of uncertainty. Yes. Why? Uh well, great question. Um I think the answer can be found in this variety article. Uh I'm I'm really I'm not trying to be cute because you're right. Like people who have done much smaller shows with much less uh, acclaim um, are doing really well and don't have that same insecurity. Uh, but I think the answer is here. And uh, about two-thirds of the way through, it says, um, Harrington's curiosity about what people think of him, his tendency to review his performances and read his critics, has been sated somewhat. I placed a lot of importance on the reviews of this, he says. It's the reviews of this, in this case, is a performance he's doing, but the The idea is, I think he's insecure because he's insecure. Like, he doesn't actually come across as somebody who believes, oh, I earned this. More so than, like, uh, the baseline insecurity that all actors already have? Yeah, no. Like, look, say you are Varys in Game of Thrones. I Forgive me for not knowing that actor's name off the top of my head. You know what I'm talking about? Of course, Or Peter Baelish, right? All of their scenes are about being crafty and knowing which card to play when mm-hmm. and, you know, being uh, an unpredictable ally or an unreliable narrator of their own stories or whatnot. Even Sophie Turner, even Sansa has had stories that are quieter, right? And that tell you more about who the actor is behind right. the character. 
And Jon Snow, God bless him, has spent seven years walking. <laughs> yes. Yep. He's been walking. I think him, he, 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 like both, he, him and Daenerys. Like I'm not, I feel the same way about Amelia Clark. She has glared. He has not glared quite so much. She has done some glaring. She's done like the same speech. I will break the circle or whatever, you know, the wheel. Yeah. You will not defy me. Yeah, Yeah. of course. Yeah. No, he's been walking for seven seasons and sometimes he like scowls in the face of snow, literal snow, and it gets in his beard. And sometimes he like drags his comrades, but it, I don't know if he's had a scene with 20 lines of dialogue in it. He's been on television for 10 years in a scenario that is, let's be real, as far from television as it can be. These mm-hmm. are films yeah. that they've been doing in the final season of Game of Thrones even more so. Yeah. Like, they're, I think they're each meant to be 80 minutes long. Isn't that right? I think a couple of them are. Right. And I think the first two are 57 or 58 or something like that. Right. Like, those are films. The mm-hmm. money that is spent here is never going to be. Oh. Yeah. But I also don't think that you can go from that to, like, he's not going to be the lead on an NBC three camera sitcom. He doesn't want that. He's not going to be happy there anyway. But I think what you're seeing is somebody who's insecure because they spent seven years not acting. You know, what's interesting to me is the, you know, when you talk to the actors on this show in particular, they wanted, you know, they didn't know season to season if they would make it to the end, right? Of course. And like, so we have heard all those anecdotes where like at the beginning of each season, they'd flip through their scripts and they'd be like, how many episodes am I getting? Am Mm -hmm. am I going to be around next year? And the goal ostensibly was to make it to the end, right? Like it's Game of Thrones. And in a sense, like they were all playing it too in terms of their careers. And if you don't make it to the end, to have a big, juicy, memorable death, right? That's right. And I want her to know it was me. That's right. Like I, but that's what I'm building to. Rob Stark mm-hmm. died in probably the show's most famous episode. Yeah, The absolutely. Red Wedding. Yes. And the actor Richard Madden, mm-hmm. I would say in right now, even though he didn't make it to the end, is in a better position now that we're coming up to the end of Game of Thrones then Jon Snow or Kit Harrington. Richard Madden just did the bodyguard or bodyguard. 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 Yeah. It was quite successful mm-hmm. in the UK. Mm-hmm. It was quite successful here yep. in North America. I'm I'm resisting please to watch it. Uh, cause I have stuff to do, but I will watch it at some point. Right. You've heard about you've heard the buzz. Yeah. Like lots of people were talking about it. Yeah. Probably gonna get a second season. Um and he did that, he did he did that movie. That terrible Netflix movie that I know I, exa- I was actually going to the IMDb of it right now. Abita? Yep. But I, uh, I also I can't hate that movie because I can't hate anything Gillian Jacobs. I really love her. I, I agree. Like I hated it and yet I watched every minute of it and he was fucking hot. He was really hot and like <laughs> Vanessa Bayer gets some good moments. If uh, look, don't go looking for cinematic gold. No. But, if you haven't watched it, it's, But go and enjoy it yes, anyway. Know that it's garbage, but he's a- out there doing some versatile things. But not just some versatile things. Also, like that movie, I'm glad you brought it up because go do some forgettable things. Like go do some things where there aren't always going to be eyes on you. Nobody was expecting him to be 
in that movie. Like, it's not a surprise, but like the draw there is Gillian Jacobs, if you know who that is, and Vanessa Bayer, if you don't, right? That's yeah. the, those are the names in that movie. Um, nobody, like, and then people go, hey, that's Rob Stark. Yeah. Um, and oh my God, he's hot. He's super hot. I don't hot. buy for a second that he could be a DJ. <laughs> but he's hot in regular yeah. clothing, for sure. Yeah. But also, like, and if he hadn't been the D, de- like the movie's not rising and falling on him or his DJ skills, right? Right. Like it's not a big important film choice. Um, it's just a thing that he decided to do for three weeks, probably because there was also accommodation in Ibiza being provided, yeah. you know, or Barcelona or wherever they shot. I think that what's hard when you're Kit Harrington and what the Harry Potter kids really did do a good job of was doing things for fun, like not making everything be the big important choice. Choosing things that were fun for fun's sake is is part of A, how you learn and B, how you take some of the pressure off. He just seems so serious. He reminds me a little bit, don't yell at me people, but you're going to yell at me. He reminds me a little bit of your beloved Leo when he started campaigning for the Oscar in earnest about five years before he got it. You say beloved sarcastically. I just want to point out. Yeah, but like he was, people were still affectionate toward him back then, circa whenever, when he started being like, no, I think like this Mm -hmm. is the thing. And there's no fun. There's no fun. There's a lot of taking yourself seriously. And the most, the smartest thing he could do right now, if he could do it, would be like to spoof himself on yeah. an HBO comedy. Do something goofy. But I don't think he will. Like Leonardo DiCaprio. Won't. Ever. Right. Um, yeah. Or like even if he could secure an SNL hosting gig. But I don't get the impression that he's secure enough in himself to do that. Has he hosted? I don't know. Let me check. I don't. I feel like we would know. I feel like that would be a meme. Like Jon Snow's dick in a box or something. <laughs> Would be a meme, I feel. Funny you say this, Duanna, because mm-hmm. he has not, but he will on April 6th. Oh, well, that makes it sound like a like a setup. Like we were… And we promise that… We're not… Yeah. And maybe it was in my subconscious, but we're not being paid by Here's NBC. why. Here's why it's not in our subconscious. Because when they announced it, I'll tell you, they announced… The hosts and the musical guests for March 30, April 6, and April 13. Here's the host for March 30, Sandra Oh. That's what it would have caught our attention. Right. With Tame Impala. Uh-huh. The host for April 6th, yes, Kit Harrington. With musical Sarah guests. Sarah Bareilles. Okay. And April 13, Emma Stone and BTS. So yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> where are my eyeballs going? My eyeballs, mine personally, are going to Sandra, yeah. BTS, yeah. and Emma Stone. Right. Absolutely. Yours are going to Sandra, yeah. Sarah Bareilles, yes. and, <laughs> and Emma Stone. And I hate to say this, but Sarah Bareilles, of course, is so closely professionally linked with Josh Groban yeah. that like, at a casual <laughs> glance, people are like, oh, is Josh Groban hosting with her? <laughs> no, it's Kid Harrington. That's right. Ah, That's same, why, same. To our, in our defense, now I, we hope you believe us, we are... It did not lodge in my memory because, yeah, when they announced it, I was just more excited about Sandra O oh and BTS and Emma Stone. So, yes, he is going to host Kit Harrington. So this is Variety. Now he's, like, giving us his what's next. Let's see, April 6th, whether or not Kit Harrington will either be uh, Daniel Radcliffe or Hayden Christensen. 
Ooh, good comparison. Yeah, because there are there are hosts and there are hosts, right? There are people who come on and make a meal of it, and there are people where they're basically being wheelbarrowed around the stage while the cast just does their jobs for mm-hmm. a week. So it'll be interesting, but I wish I felt more optimistic about his lack of self-reference. Mm-hmm. He seems like the guy who would get annoyed if somebody in the subway called out, Jon Snow! Like, yeah. you can't be annoyed at that stuff. Yeah. Am I being too harsh? Did you feel the same way? No, I, you said my, Hayden Christensen was a good comparison. I love your Leo comparison because my joke or whatever about Leo is I bet you he leaves the room every time he hears my heart will go on. <laughs> right? Like, I don't think he can sit and hear that song. I think he's so embarrassed of being Jack Dawson, which is, would he be anything if he wasn't Jack Dawson? No, and and no, no, he wouldn't. And for no other reason than having a release year in common, I just, I was trying not to interrupt you and wanted to say, what they need is a my best friend's wedding. Like, there's no comparison there except that every single person in that movie, with the possible exception of Dermot Mulroney, but even then, because he was basically like, bamboozled. Mm-hmm. Every single person in that movie is not taking themselves seriously. And so it did wonders for all of them. I mean, of course you had to give a Julia reference here. I, but I didn't even mention her name, oh, actually. Like we couldn't but, smell her. <laughs> no, but look, but I, I was just thinking Titanic 1997 and the polar opposite. And as enduring a movie is one where nobody is that overwrought about themselves. And that's my Kit Harrington advice, as if he needs it, is don't be so bloody overwrought, dude. Uh, and, you know, he's, his wife is on The Good Fight, where not everything is about her, which it never was on Game of Thrones anyway. But maybe he craves that. Maybe he longs for that. Maybe we'll see him on some procedural or other. But uh, I feel like there is a getting over oneself that needs to be done a little. Okay, so April 6th, SNL, if we remember to watch that weekend. <laughs> and then the premiere of Game of Thrones is... April uh, 16th. Right, so a weekend change yeah. later. Right. Okay, and finally, Julianne Moore. Well, or can you ever forgive me? Yeah. Depending on how you see this story is who the headline is here. So three weeks ago, Julianne Moore revealed that she was fired... From Can You Ever Forgive Me? In the role that ultimately went to Melissa McCarthy. For which she was nominated for an Oscar just this past February. Right. And if I remember correctly, uh, Julianne Moore revealed that on Watch What Happens Live. That's right. And she said it was over creative differences. Right. When that came out, you pitched it for this show and you were like, oh my God, please let us talk about this. And I'm pretty sure that was actually Oscar week or... It was just afterwards. It was like yeah. that first week back. And for whatever reason, we didn't get to it. We had some stuff. But thank God. Well, because the reason I wanted to talk about it then was because nobody says that. Nobody says I was fired. And uh, here's a little spoiler that I think people know, but maybe you don't. When somebody is attached to a project and then later says they have to drop out because of scheduling issues, 99 times out of 100, fired. Right. Like the the scheduling issues mm-hmm. and the logistics is a nice way to let everybody off the hook. Yeah. That's like HR saying they'll write you a nice yeah. recommendation letter. Fired. And what's, what's weird is that 
no one was sniffing around. Like, we weren't out here thinking, oh my God, why wasn't Julianne more? Like, it wasn't a, what is that expression? Like, a thread we wanted to pull. Like, no, it wasn't a smoking gun of any no, kind. No, nobody was curious about this. She offered it up, like, kind of out of the blue. Well, and when you say it that way instead of, oh, uh, I was going to, but then things made it complicated and I couldn't. When you say, I was fired, I mean, you know, and there are 200 odd people who would know she was fired because that's how film crews work. Um, I thought it was very bald and bold of her to do so Mm -hmm. and to be out in front of the story. And that's why I wanted to do it then because I would venture two things that Hollywood is a town where people are fired more often Mm -hmm. than anywhere else. I would say everybody in that town uh, above or below the line has been fired a couple of times. And because, yeah, nobody ever talks about it. There's always a veil. Yeah. But then. So let's be clear. At the time, the conversation was going to be, oh my God, how refreshing. Somebody actually called it for what it is. She didn't couch it in. Oh, it just didn't work out scheduling this and that and the other. The right person went, got the job and I'm so happy for Melissa. She's great in that movie. No, she was like, I was fired. Right. And it was going to be a conversation about, uh, you know, uh, taking the shame off it, right? Like shout your firing to adopt a a phrase, that kind of thing. Then. Then. And if we had done it then, we'd have to revisit it, it again. So thank God we didn't do it again because now we can just wrap it up in one conversation then Richard E. Grant's on some kind of panel, and Richard <laughs> I mean, E. Grant, our, our love of, I mean, I adored him during the campaign. Yeah, I, of course. I loved him during the campaign also, and he, I, I like to resist when everybody loves somebody, but he was really hard to resist. Yeah. He was very charming. But, like, of course he's the one where this story comes out, because he's, <laughs> he's not careful. Like, no, no. You know that exp- that thing you always say, Beyonce keeps her shit tight? Yeah. He's the opposite no, of that. No. So he's at a panel somewhere and he's like, she wanted to wear a fat suit and a fake nose. And Nicole Halsener, who was the writer and at the time the director, was like, nope. And I guess that was the impasse and she got fired. I guess that Julianne Moore felt that she wanted to wear a fat suit uh, to get her physicality closer to the real Lee Israels. Right. But obviously, Nicole Hull Center felt that she was going to be fine as Lee Israel without needing to rely on those things, or she wouldn't have cast her in the first when place. When you say she was going to be fine, were you, like, do you mean she was going to be fine if she went and, like, gained weight? I don't think so. I mean, do you, I don't feel like that's uh, a whispered tone here, is there? I I think that that's what some, at least, at least some people would read it as, like, that if you're going to wear a fat suit, then why not, like, just do the Christian Bale and the Charlize Theron? Oh, I didn't get that impression at all. Not least because, and maybe this is my own bias, but like, you know, I think that's not a mere 30 pounds up the scale. This is not circle of friends style. I think I, I was under the impression that this was, uh, 
you're going to be fine even though you are a slimmer individual than she was. Right. I don't know. I You know what? That actually gives me a whole different uh, take on it. Mm-hmm. And without really getting into body policing, uh, Lee Israel, the woman, uh, she's she was more substantial than Julianne Moore is physically, uh, but she wasn't what anybody would call a fat woman. Um, she was a woman in her fifties with sort of a middle-aged body. Uh, that's neither here nor there, but I just, I don't think we were in shallow Hal territory. Right. No, you're right. I think though, when an actress says, hey, to play this character, I want to put on a fat suit and a nose, she's saying something about how she's seeing her performance, right? Oh, absolutely. And whether or not, like Julianne Moore is one of my favorites. Yeah. And so I don't want to, you know, I, I, I say this not wanting to malign her ever, but yeah, it seems like, like fat suits aside, fat suits we all acknowledge are kind of garbage and never need to be seen on film again, right? Yeah. But it makes it seem that what was a character study, what was this beautiful biography um, of a complicated woman could wind up being like a a caricature, right? A performance uh, inside a costume. Yeah. Like it could be kitschy and that you'd lose the focus of the movie inside looking at the the nose. And then Nicole Hall of Center was like, Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. And I guess we're parting ways. Yeah. Um, you know, which which makes sense, I suppose. And also Hall of Center actually left the movie after that, right? Yeah. Like had already written it, but left it as its director. Right. So, I mean, was it the right move? Seems to be the right move. Absolutely. Well, yeah, but the right move on whose part? Like, As we were talking about, Julianne kind of came out with this first, right? Yep. Nobody's asking about this. Like, they managed to go through an entire campaign, Mm -hmm. Oscar campaign, Mm -hmm. during which Melissa and Richard E. Grant were nominated. Yep. And as was the screenplay. I want to be clear. That's right. So we've gone through months, right? They've done, like, they've done the circuit. They've run the gauntlet. They've managed to get through all of that. Julianne Moore doesn't come up. Suddenly, she's on the press circuit for her film, Mm -hmm. Gloria Bell, getting great reviews, by the way. Yeah. And, I don't know, decides to put it on the table. So when she puts it on the table, that makes headlines. You sent it to me. Oh, my God, we have to talk about this on Show Your Work. It makes headlines. And then Richard E. Grant is on a panel somewhere and it comes up. And Richard E. Grant being Richard E. Grant, he's like, oh yeah, it's because of the fat suit in the nose. Right. (laughs) I mean, did uh, we need to be talking about this, Julianne? Yeah, we did. She's hurt. Like, that's what this reeks of to me. She is hurt. She, even the way that she said in that first interview, yeah, I was fired. Like, I didn't leave that movie. I was fired. She's hurt. She wanted that movie. And I don't even mean, again, apply your own biases to me here, but I don't even mean she's hurt that she didn't get a swing at Oscar or whatever. I think she was hurt. Like, I think she thinks she had the best intentions for that character or that role, and she's mad that she got kicked off. And that's what's interesting, because I think we just agreed, like, 
that was the right decision. Nicole Hall of Center being like, no, absolutely not. We're not going to do a fat suit and a nose. And yeah, I mean, what does everybody remember about the hours? The nose. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, aside from which, uh, there were inferences that said nose was maybe like gonna look a bit anti-Semitic caricature wise. Mm-hmm. And as does a, a fat suit, a fat suit's not anti-Semitic, but it's, you know, yeah. can look anti-fat. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's absolutely the right decision. It's interesting that they couldn't come to a different place on it. Right. Right. Like, I think what it speaks to, and maybe this is your point about why, Julianne Moore brought this up at all, is how does, hey, we disagree about what this character should be costumed and made up to look like. How does that conversation become, get out of here, I never want to talk to you again? That's yeah. that's dramatic on at least one person's part. Yep. And I can see Julianne Moore going like, sorry, really? Like, all I said was this, I wanted to wear it like this, like really? I got fired for that? Am I being too much of a, of a, an apologist here? No. I mean, that's, that's a really good take on it. It could be like, Hey, all I did was suggest this. You could say no and I'll still do it in my way. I, I, this is what I would like. I would like now to know how it went down. Was it literally like, Hey, what do you think about this and this? And Nicole being like, "Mm, no, and then, I think that's a safe assumption that at least that conversation was had. Yeah. And then… Was there no follow-up? Was there, but I really want to put on this and this. And it was like, but no. Let's say there was. Let's say there were two of those back and forth. Yeah. Right? And then and add in some like terse emails and uh, a couple of like phone calls and you pretend that you missed the call because you were driving or whatever. Yeah. Do you fire somebody over that? Is this a communication issue? Is this about people who did or didn't sit down and say, and God, nobody wants to have these conversations. You know when you're in a fight with your partner and you're like, ugh, this is about to become a fight. Like what I thought was a disagreement is now a fight. We are like, and now we're in it. Now we have to do this. Yeah. Nobody wants to have those fights, right? Mm -mm. But you're like, okay, the only way out of this is through. Yeah. Right? You have to do it. Did nobody in that situation sort of grit their teeth, have a shot of something and be like, okay, let's hash this out. It doesn't, I think that's where the, did we need this Julianne Moore is coming from. I think she either took her ball and went home or she's implying that Nicole Hall of Center took her ball and went home, basically said, then you can't play with me anymore. Goodbye. See, and here's where here's where I'm inclined to think that it was Julianne who took her ball and went home, or, I mean, she says she got fired, but because this was, as we know, this was a small picture. This is a small project. Right. Like, in no understanding of Hollywood was this, like, people were not throwing money at it. No, no, no. It was wee tiny. And the fact that it even made it to be a player at the Oscars is notable. Right. So... If you're at Nicole Hall Center and you write this mm-hmm. and you get Julianne Moore to mm-hmm. play, yeah. at, we have talked about this extensively of how about how you get projects off the ground. If you can attach Julianne Moore with all the Julianne Moore-ness mm-hmm. coming off like what, three years ago, the Oscar and her, I mean, her reputation, her like track record, that's 
an asset. It can only be seen as an asset, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's something that Nicole Hollis Center probably wouldn't want to lose. Not only that, but they, they might have secured funding, funding or, you know, distribution based or whatever. Based on… Hey, Julianne Moore is attached. The participation of Julianne Moore. Mm-hmm. So whatever it was that happened, like if I'm Nicole Hollisenter, I'm like, oh shit, there's two things. I need to make this so badly. Everybody who writes something wants to make it, right? Everybody who w- writes something wants to make it and direct it. Like More than anything. More than anything. That's what I'm getting at. More than anything. So now your Oscar-winning actress comes to you with these two ideas and you're like, mm, no, I I'm having a hard time seeing Nicole Hollison are throwing it down and being like, the fuck you, walk out the door. But let's now play it out from the other scenario. Yeah. All the same things you said are true. Mm-hmm. This is a small movie. It's not getting a ton of attention. And Ju- if I'm Julianne Moore, with all my Julianne Moore-ness, mm-hmm. the pile of offers that I have on my desk, not yep. auditions, not hopefuls, the pile of offers straight yours is massive yep and I look through all of them and I choose this one I want to do this one I really feel this it's not glamorous it's not going to get a lot of attention I know people talk about you know getting ugly for Oscar and all that but depending on your interpretation Lee Israel is not really redeemed at the end of this movie Mm -mm. like she's kind of a see the movie guys it's so good oh it's so good She's kind of a reprehensible character throughout. Well, the title is Can You Ever Forgive Me? I know, but maybe people think she should have been forgiven. Whatever. Spoiler, maybe not. (laughs) So if I'm Julianne Moore and of all the pictures, I choose this one and I tell my agent, I don't know this for a fact, but I imagine she worked for not much money. This is not a playing a superhero's mom. We've established this is like a small project. Right. But like, to be real, she probably, I don't know what Julianne Moore's highest quote is. Say she makes $15 million on a big movie. I would venture she might've made, you know, 300,000 on this. Like it's a small fraction of her quote. She did like, she did the Kingsman movie so that she could maybe do this one. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) So she loves it and she arranges her schedule and she does all these things for this movie and turns down all these other things that would have been shooting at the same time, maybe other good projects. And then she's fired because of a disagreement over how the character's going to look. Like, that's why I get fired. And corroboration for that is if, if she did walk away, if she was the one who was like, then I'm not doing this then I don't think she's been a player in the game for long enough that then I don't think she would go on, watch what happens and be like, and I was fired. And in fact, Richard E. Grant also says she was fired. He doesn't say, oh, then she quit because she couldn't get the costume she wanted. Right. right? And I mean, consider the source, but also he's not a paragon of discretion. Like, it's probably close to what happened. Maybe. I I see your point, but I also, I don't, I don't know. Like, this is why this situation is so confounding to us. Yeah. Like, and because Julianne Moore is not a known pouty pants nope. in the press. Maybe she is in private. Email us. But she's not. she doesn't do this all the time. And I've seen her in some bad movies. Well, whether or not she's a pouty pants in the press is there's never been any like there's never been any dirt about her on set. I no, mean, no she diva shows behavior. Up, 
she shows up and everybody shows up too because she's like she is working and setting the tone and yep. all those things. So it's it's a bit of a brain teaser. It is, and for us, given that we're obsessed with work, like the fact that we don't know where the work broke down, like what was the communication gap that they couldn't cross? Like, because this is why it's so confusing. You should have been able to make this work with somebody who is Julianne Moore, right? Like it's Julianne Moore. Yeah, absolutely. And if you can't, and if, as you say, all you want to do is get this movie made, whether you are Nicole or Julianne in this scenario, I like you'd pull out all the stops to make it work, right? The hosts of My Favorite Murder, uh, which I think we've talked mm-hmm. about, yeah, uh, who are both, you know, sort of both had careers in Hollywood before and have had this phenomenal success with that show, talked about how they now go to therapy together in order to work through the inevitable work conflicts that come up and uh, that, you know, can arise. And I love that. I think it's really smart and I think it's a good business investment. And I wonder why wasn't there a mediator here to go, okay, guys, like this is about to break (gasps) down. Um, You know, an indie film is often made out of somebody's backyard. You know, even at this budget level, there's a lot of penny pinching, mm-hmm. but you'd think that this would have been the kind of thing that would have been like, let's, let's take a trip. I love that you're making frustrated gestures at yeah. me. Like, why didn't they? Yeah. Um, and that's not to say that the movie wasn't great as it was. I Melissa know. McCarthy was wonderful. Mariel Heller wound up directing. It and- turned out as it should, like, I mean, it was nominated for Oscars and like, we're not saying that the end product wasn't great. But it's the sliding doors of what could have been, right? A different movie would have been made if this disagreement hadn't blown up into a a project-ending disagreement. And you're right. It's incredibly frustrating to me and I think to you too because, again, like this – when you line it all up like this and you're somebody who writes this project and someone's given you – like you have – you wrote it and you have the opportunity to direct it and then Julianne Moore comes onto it. I don't understand how it broke down over a fat suit and a nose. It is frustrating. And, you know, we've talked about Julianne Moore being such a professional and us being such fans, of course. But Nicole Hall Center, like, is a huge deal as well. I'm a huge fan of her. She made so many great things. She made Enough Said. She's directed everything. She made Friends with Money. She's directed, like, episodes of Things You Love, like... Uh, Orange is the New Black and has, uh, she did The Land of Steady Habits. Like, she's not a rookie. No. In any way, shape, or form. So, and you can't imagine that this is the first time that she's worked with a performer who had opinions. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah, what was the breakdown here? I don't know. If you do. (laughs) Oh, my God. If you do, or if you have gossip, or even if you just have like a hunch, a real yeah. gut feeling, you're like, this is just like the time my yeah. aunt didn't show up to the thing. Yeah. I, I would I would even take speculation at this point because it doesn't seem to add up the no, way it is. It doesn't. And this is like one of one of our the few work mysteries we've been unable to sort of tie a bow around, you know? Like it both of us are both of us are furring our brow right now. Like both of us are getting closer and closer to Botox because we're so confused about this. But yeah, this is 
this is the thing. We don't, how can two veterans not make it work? I, I love that you said work mystery because that has become what this episode is about, right? What happened yep. on Can You Forgive Me? What the hell does Kit Harrington want or how does he see himself? It's mm-hmm. a mystery because that article did not make it any more clear, uh, except he sees himself as short-haired. <laughs> and, and how did Barbara Walters lose the control that you were so thrilled that she had? Yeah. Those are this week's Unsolved Mysteries. Mm-hmm. Can I end it on a delightful Richard E. Grant note, though? Uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, let's go. Um, you can find the through line here. But in doing, like, in this story, in the, comp- like, you know, his revelation that gave us this work mystery, it also, like, you know, he also goes on to talk about during this panel or whatever that he was in, I mean, I didn't know this. I've been following him all season and I I wish I knew this before so I could write about this. I just didn't go through his IMDb that extensively, but he was in the Spice Girls movie. You know, I think I did know that, but not, not materially. So he was the manager. Yes, that makes sense actually. And here's the through line. He, he played the manager, and he said that his fellow thespians made fun of him for taking the job. Well. And so uh, what happened was that he took the job, people made fun of him, and then he said that the reason why he was on Girls is because Lena Dunham loves the Spice Girls movie and remembers him from Girls. Being on Girls obviously gave him a much bigger profile in a certain circle. In a New York uh, auteur-y, yeah, kind of way. Of course. And then Adele, I guess, seeing him. <laughs> I know, Adele comes into this. Don't you love him? Don't you love him? Then, then he goes, he goes, then Adele sent me tickets to her sold-out concert at the O2 because she knew me from Spice World, so it's a double win. And he went on to be nominated for an Oscar and hang out with, like, everybody and take selfies, bad selfies with them. Um, So this is Kit Harrington. Go find your spice world. Snobbery does not pay. (laughs) I mean, it's funny because we were talking about Julianne Moore getting all those offer-onlys, right? Um, And, I mean, generally speaking, a role like that in the spice spice world – you would audition and be chosen. But I love the idea that they were like waving it around to anybody who would take it. They're like, do you want to be it? Do you? And he was like, oh, okay. all right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that actually did did perk me up a little bit. Thank yeah, you. I appreciate that. Um, so Kit, go find your Spice World. Yeah, get on it. <laughs> and let us know your thoughts on The View, whether or not you think Kit Harrington is going to be a Daniel Radcliffe or a Hayden Christensen. And whether you are a Julianne or a Nicole. Um, And thank you always for listening, for sharing your work stories with us. We will be back next week. We have so much good stuff coming up for you guys and can't wait to hear more about what you're doing. So keep showing your work. Subscribe to us where you get your podcasts, leave comments and reviews. Bye. Bye.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.